together to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. As I mentioned in the first word on worship, this is not a typical Palm Sunday text. But I think as we work our way through it, we'll see how this actually connects to this week that we are remembering as Holy Week. Of course, so much of this week, starting with Palm Sunday uh, and running through Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, reminds us of those principal events upon which our salvation depends. Um, Ultimately, the betrayal and the crucifixion, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus That is where our hopes are ultimately anchored uh, in the historicity and reality of those events, but not just their historicity, now their value for us, which means they have something to do with the tragedies of our lives. Those events aren't simply Sunday events. The events of Holy Week ultimately affect the rest of our week and indeed the the way we see life, which brings us to Genesis 34, a profoundly tragic chapter And we'll be asking the question, where is God in the midst of it? But in order to see how God relates to this chapter and how the events of Holy Week relate to these tragedies, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people desiring to hear your word once again. Lord, we do pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our eyes of faith. Help us to see wonders in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting in Genesis chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. In order to read this, I'm pulling out my reading glasses because I can't see. Excuse me. Um, Verse 1. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our daughter to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. 
that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. C.S. Lewis lost his mother, Pauline Lewis, to cancer when he was nine years old. And though Lewis, this young boy, had prayed that God would heal her, God did not heal her. And when she died, when his mother died, it became the great event in his life. Lewis would later reflect in his memoir, Surprised by Joy, with my mother's death, all settled happiness... All that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church, which is a Southern Baptist megachurch in Orange County, California lost his 27-year-old son, Matthew, in 2013. Matthew was mentally ill. He had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Uh, and in a time when his illness was particularly severe, he went online, illegally bought a gun, and ended up committing suicide. Reflecting on Matthew's death about five months later, Warren wrote this. He said, I... I've never questioned my faith in God, but I have questioned God's plan. There's a big difference. I know that God's a good God, and everything that happens in the world God allows, he permits because it couldn't happen without his permission. But we live in a world where there are free choices. So if I choose to do wrong, 
I can't blame God for that. So God isn't to blame for my son's death. My son took his own life. It was his choice. These two examples from C.S. Lewis and Rick Warren, they, they remind us that while our families are often places of great joy and happiness, they are also places of deep and profound grief. Even tragedy. And of course, these examples could be magnified. We were to take the time for you to tell your stories. Some of you might say things like, we were parents who sent our daughter off to college only to have to go get her because we discovered she was cutting herself. Or, or we discovered that she had so significantly slid into anorexia that she was no longer able to function. Or I'm a husband who discovered that my wife had rekindled a relationship through Facebook and has been involved with another man for the past two years. Or I'm a daughter who deals with my father's drinking and my mother's verbal abuse. And when they get too far gone, I actually go up into my bedroom and lock myself in so that they can't confront me. Or I'm the son who bears the scars of my father's sexual abuse when I was 11 years old or whatever it may be. The list can go on and on. These sorts of family tragedies that I've just named, they are real. They serve as the painful secrets or the open and obvious wounds that we bear. And they profoundly affect us in ways that are both known and, and unknown to us and to others. And yet in the midst of these family tragedies that we experience the real question that we find ourselves asking, not just in the moment, but in the years afterwards, as we, as we think and wrestle about all of this, is where, where was God? Where is God in all of this? Why didn't he stop this? Why has this been allowed to happen? Those are the right questions. They're the questions that we need to bring to this, this place in the Bible this morning. Because in this entire chapter filled with tragedy, there is one name who goes unmentioned here. God is not present, at least not on the, in the words of chapter 34 of Genesis. He's nowhere to be found. And so we do have to ask the question, as all of this is unfolding, where is God, is he involved in the messiness of our lives? Is he involved in the tragedies in which we find ourselves? After all, consider what has happened to Jacob's daughter. As the scene opens, Moses emphasizes who Dinah is. You see it in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob... A little bit later, she'll be called the daughter of Jacob, but that's not the common uh, way she's identified in this chapter. Um, I think Moses is telling us something right at the get-go, something that I think shapes the way the rest of this scene unfolds, shapes Jacob's reaction. This is Leah's daughter. 
wonder if I wonder if Jacob would have reacted differently to all that unfolds if this had been Rachel's daughter. We're not sure what that clue means, but Moses gives us another clue about this scene as it unfolds with Jacob's daughter. The rest of verse one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, this is more than she just went to hang out with the girlfriends. No, for Moses, uh, going out to see the women of the land was to go out with the pagan women. And at a bare minimum, whatever else this means, it means that Dinah is hanging out with the wrong crowd, and she's in the wrong place. And then as she's in the, with the wrong crowd in the wrong place, the absolute worst thing we can imagine happen happening happens to her you see it in verse 2 and when Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite the prince of the land saw her he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her now we, we shouldn't sugarcoat what's happened here Dinah's been raped she's been violated humiliated It's hard for us to imagine as parents the heartbreak we would have known if, if this had happened to our daughter. Some of you have actually known that heartbreak. You know how awful and horrifying this is. But then it goes from worst to even worse than worst because the perpetrator, Shechem, he's actually seized her and desires to force her into marriage. We won't discover until verse 26, Shechem has actually locked her away in his house. She's not hanging out with her brothers. No, he has her in his place, inside the city. He has all the leverage. He, what he's proposing here is literally a shotgun wedding. He has the shotgun. He has it aimed, if you will, at Dinah. He has all the leverage here. He professes to love Dinah, but, but his demands to his father and his harsh seizure and his taking what does not belong to him, it, it doesn't give us any sense of, of a noble character. In fact, this, he's repugnant. Shechem is repugnant. Now stop for a minute and just, just think about this. Think about what's happened to Jacob's daughter. Not only her humiliation, but, but her seizure. She's under, a, she's under house arrest in the home of her rapist. Where is God in this? Like, why did God allow Shechem to do this? Was God angry? Was God angry about this? Or was he passive? Passive like Jacob himself. When Jacob hears this, his reaction is so strange, especially to those of us who are fathers of daughters. I mean, I, I cannot imagine reacting like Jacob did. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he, that is Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came and and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. I mean, he seems so strangely 
passive. He holds his peace. He receives Hamor, the father of Shechem. He begins to negotiate with him. It's also strange, also passive. Why is Jacob acting this way? Is it because he's afraid of Hamor and the Hivites? I mean, there's some indication here in the chapter that that's the case. I mean, the chapter ends with Jacob abrading his two sons, saying to him, verse 30, saying to them, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And so perhaps he's passive because he doesn't have the military wherewithal to protect himself against the inhabitants of the land. Perhaps that's why he's passive. Or is he passive because, because this is Dinah, after all. The unloved daughter of the unloved wife. Again, there's some sense in the rest of the way this passage unfolds, how she's described only a couple of times as she actually related to Jacob, more often to, to Leah, to Dinah's brothers. We're not sure why Jacob is passive, but when you compare him to David in 2 Samuel 13, when David's daughter Tamar is raped and he is furious, you begin to see some of the family tragedy. Not just the tragic event, but the, the family's dysfunction. The father is utterly passive. He doesn't seem to want to do anything about what's happened to his own daughter. Now ask yourself again, where's God in this? I mean, God had, had spoken to Jacob over and again. In chapter 28, as he's making his way to Laban, at Bethel, he, he spoke to him through the angels going up and down on the ladder, connecting heaven and earth. He had spoken to him when he had been with Laban. Go back home. He had wrestled with him at Peniel before he met Esau. Where is God now when Dinah was raped? Does he care? Is he angry at all? Angry like Jacob's sons? Because unlike their father... Jacob's sons, especially Leah's sons, Dinah's full brothers, are furious. That's what verse 7 tells you. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field. And as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel or against Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. The brothers' initial reaction, it was the right one. They recognized that Shechem had done an outrageous thing, a horrible thing. Later in the Pentateuch, the last of the five books of Moses called Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 22, God, through Moses the lawgiver, would decree that if this kind of thing happened in Israel, it would require death. The death penalty. And so you shall purge the evil from Israel, Moses said. That's how serious this was. This is a capital offense. It deserves the death penalty. And so, Dinah's brothers, they are justifiably angry. And I think Hamor's speech concerning how they might link arms with the Hivites doesn't help things because ultimately it's going to allow 
Jacob's sons to hide behind religion in order to wreck their revenge. In verses 8 to 17, as they discuss this, they, they point out that the only way they could intermarry with the Hivites is if the Hivites shared their religion, which was signed in circumcision. But we're clued into their real intention, aren't we? In verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah deceitfully. They were sons of Jacob, after all. Jacob was the heel grabber, the supplanter, the deceiver. And so in this moment, what do the sons of Jacob do? They answer deceitfully. It's a lie, a smokescreen, a cheat, an attempt to manipulate. They took a, a page from their own father's dysfunction and sin, and they, they use it. They lie to Hamar. And of course, it appears that Hamar and, and Shechem were lying too. Uh, they're going to say to their kinsmen in verse 23, will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And so like with Laban and Jacob, so it is with Hamor and Shechem and Jacob's sons. They're both trying to manipulate the other. But when finally the city agrees to, to seal the covenant with circumcision, that's when Jacob's sons strike. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Again, we have to say what this is, friends. This is genocide. That's what it is. It's genocide. Simeon and Levi slaughter all the men of the town when they were defenseless. They hacked off their heads. They slit their throats. They skewered them. And then the brothers rushed in and they raped the town. They took everything, flocks and herds and donkeys and wealth and children and women, all that was in the houses. And when their father abraded them, they justified it. Well, should they have treated our sister as a prostitute? Friends, this is tragic. This is a, a deep, profound family tragedy. It's the kind of strange secret that we want to keep hidden away, buried deep. We don't want people to know about our family story. A daughter raped, a father passive, 11 sons murderous and rapacious. And in all of it, we have to ask one last time, where's God? Where is God in this? Was he involved? Was he governing this? Or did, did he simply turn away and simply look the other way while it all happened? I think we have to ask these questions about God, not simply because we want to figure out what this place in the Bible says, as though we can somehow create a theological proposition that we can store away as data in our heads and, and somehow say we've got that checked off. We need to ask these kinds of questions 
because we need to figure out our lives. I mean, why did C.S. Lewis's mother die when he was nine years old? Why did your mother die? Why did your father die way too young? Where was God? Or why did Rick, Rick Warren's mentally ill son commit suicide? Why does your loved one, your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your cousin, your dearest friend, why do they struggle with mental illness? Why does your loved one commit suicide? Where was God? Why did your daughter struggle with anorexia? Or why did your son develop an alcohol or drug addiction? Or, or why did your father sexually abuse you? Where was God? Or why did your spouse have an affair and destroy your family? Or why did your spouse, when, when he or she sue you, sued you for divorce, went after you so hard, it was nasty, like a kind of revenge. Where was God in that? I mean, if we're honest this morning, that's the question we want answered. And in those times when we ask that question, if we're really honest, if we don't think the preacher can somehow reach into our heads and see the real thoughts of our, our heads and our hearts, if we're really honest, the, 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 the incessant thought in our in our minds, when we have that question in our head, where is God, is he's nowhere. He's not really here. Nowhere to be found, just like in Genesis 34. He's not there. And then we begin to fear, maybe religion really is a cheat. Maybe it's a deceit played just like Jacob's sons, to gain control or to gain power or wealth or revenge or whatever it is our hearts most desperately want and most desperately need. Of course, there, there is another answer to that question. Where is God? Where, where was God? Where is God? And it's simply this. He's been there all along. He's able, in the midst of this, in the midst of freely chosen evil, he's able to take this freely chosen, real, profound evil and he's able to use it in a way that's far beyond what we can know for a real and lasting good. And, and part of the way this happens, I think, is as he shouts in the midst of that very pain we're going through. The very pain that our families know. He, he's shouting in it. That was C.S. Lewis's later reflection. As he wrote about it in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he, he observed that pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so in the midst of all of our family tragedies, God is there and he's shouting to us. He's calling to us with a loud voice to run to him with all of our hurt and all of our pain, all of our loss and all of our shame, all of our humiliation, all of our defilement. But why why is that a good idea? I mean, isn't he the one who allowed it all to begin with? I mean, why should we listen to a God shouting to us? I mean, wouldn't we be better off just to ignore his voice? Well, the reason why we should pay attention to him is because God is the one who's actually done something about our tragic condition. 
He's done something about those family tragedies that are all the result of sin and evil that's parasitic on the good that we, through our first parents, actually brought into this world. All of the evil and all of the fall, all of the fault in this world isn't God's doing, it's our doing. But God actually did something about it. How? Well, that's what this week is about. That's what Holy Week is about. It's about God doing something about the evil that we do and the evil that has actually been done to us. Because, of course, God allowed pain and hurt and sorrow and loss to enter into his family, if you will. He knows what it is to experience tragedy. He knows what it is to lose a son, his only son, his well-loved son. And conversely, God knows what it is to be abandoned by a father. He knows what it is to be killed, to be pierced, skewered, to be crucified. He knows what it is to be betrayed, betrayed by those who kiss him. But friends, God did more than identify with us in our pain, did more than identify with us in the midst of our tragedy. If, if that's all God did for us, is in entering into the human condition to, to suffer just like us, then, then he's not the great savior, he's the great sympathizer. And all God would be reduced to is to sit up in the heavens and say, oh, I am so sorry, I know exactly how you feel. To be sure, he knows how you and I feel when we experience tragedy. But God actually did something about it. He did something about the sin and the evil that brought it all about. Because in dying on the cross of Jesus, uh, dying on the cross, Jesus actually experienced the greatest tragedy imaginable. He, he experienced the divine wrath, the judicial wrath that belonged to you. He experienced the God-forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced that which you deserve because of your sin and your evil. He experienced all of that, and in doing so, he defanged evil. And he defanged death. And he defanged it in such a way that we can run to him knowing he won. When Jesus said, it is finished. He was saying, I won over all of your tragedy and all of your shame and all of your humiliation and all of the brokenness that's been parasitic on the good life that I intended for you in the beginning. I've won. Sin and evil doesn't win in the end. Jesus does. And so as Jesus himself this morning is shouting to you in the midst of your tragedies, if you will listen to him, and go to him, you will actually be given power by the Spirit to live into the reality of what we will see again and again and again in the next story cycle of Joseph, but, but again and again throughout Scripture, and we'll see it over Holy Week. You meant it for evil, and others meant it for evil. And yet God, he meant it for good. Or as the Apostle Paul would put it so many years later, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is God? He's right here. And he has nail prints in his hands. He's right here. And so in the midst of your sorrow and in the midst of your grief and in the midst of the deep questions that you have, run to Jesus Christ. The eternal son of God became man. Run to him. Not only because he's able to sympathize, but because he won. Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to run to you. Out of our sorrow, darkness, and night, Jesus, we come to you. And Lord, as you hold your cross high, and as you draw us near to your cross again, help us to see it not as a proposition, although it, there's wonderful propositions connected to it, but help us to see in, the, in your cross the very victory over our sorrows and the very way in which our tragedies are actually working about your salvation in our lives. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.